Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you this morning. Father, for the truth of your holy word, to be able to even hear it. Father, to be in a place where we can openly hear the word of God read and then preached. Lord, where we can openly worship you, where we can draw near to you, God, and and proclaim your glory and your majesty and your honor. Lord, that, that we can gather together as a people to encourage and spur one another on to, to, to love and to good works. Like This is all a great gift from your hand. And I pray we would never, ever take it for granted. Father, as we deal with the truth of the living God, as we deal with the, the transcendent truth that defines all of reality, God, I pray that we would do it with humility, with the awe, and with the reverence, Lord, that it deserves. I pray that we would approach this word today, Father, knowing that we need to be conformed to the image of Christ and conform to the truth of these words and not to conform these words to our own liking. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would make us to be humble. And I pray that we would draw near to you as those who desire to be taught, those who desire, Lord God, to be, to be instructed and edified and, and, and Father, fed in the Word of God, fed, you know, just to, to feast upon the glory of, of Christ. Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that don't know Christ. God, I'm praying that you, know, you will use this time of preaching to show them, to, to open their eyes to their desperate need, um, Father, for a Savior. And, and for the blessings that are uniquely and exclusively your children's. God, I pray that you give me grace as I'm preaching, that you would strengthen me. Lord, I always am in need of your grace, but Father, my body is weak. My spirit is willing, so I pray that you would strengthen me. I pray that you would give me just the, the energy and that, Lord God, you would keep my mind clear, that I wouldn't get foggy when I'm trying to preach, that, Father God, you would just... You would give to me everything I need, Father, in order to be able to faithfully preach Your Word to the praise of Your glory. Lord, meet with us, I pray. Draw our hearts out to You. And Lord, be exalted. Be glorified. Be magnified in our midst. Make Jesus glorious in our sight, I pray. In the blessed name of our Lord. Amen. You know, beloved, last week we, um, we looked at one of the most treasured promises in the Bible, right? We looked at this, one of the most encouraging, one of the most reassuring texts in all the Scripture. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We know this, Paul says. We know it, that, that everything in the life of a Christian, everything, whether it's good or bad, whether it is joyful or sorrowful, whether it's you know prosperity or hardship, gain or loss, affirmation or persecution, all of it, every bit of it, by the sovereign and omnipotent hand of God, works together for the good of those who love God, right? Or more literally, for those who are loving God, right? It's a... It's a present active participle for those who are loving God. And we talked about what that looks like last week. We talked about that designation, that the marks of loving God are what distinguish the true and the genuine Christian from the rest of the world, right? 
that distinguish the real and true Christian from, you know, from the one who, who hates God or, or from the one who, who loves a God of their own imagination or their own creation or from those who are nominal Christians, that is Christians in name only, or from those who merely have right theological notions or belief systems apart from the real marks of love for God, right? The defining characteristic of a Christian is someone who loves God. It's someone who loves God because God has loved them first. And by His effectual calling has called them into a relationship of faith and love with the triune God, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the promise of the Christian, for the Christian, is that God works all things together for our ultimate good, right? And then we talked about what that ultimate good is. What is it? Well, the ultimate good according to Paul, is this. The ultimate good is that we would be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ so that Christ would be firstborn among many brothers. And we talked about the importance of that word firstborn. That the entire idea of that is that Christ might be exalted, that He might be magnified, that He might be glorified and have preeminence above all other people and all other things because of His work of redemption of His children, right? And what we saw, what Paul was showing us is this, is that Christ's glory and our salvation are woven together, aren't they? They are not separate from one another. In other words, our salvation tends to the the exaltation, the everlasting glory of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ demands that our salvation be secure, right? They go together. They are linked together. They are woven together, right? In other words, central to Christ's exaltation is that He be the Redeemer and the Savior of those whom the Father has given Him. The salvation of the church. The salvation of Christ's people is central to His glory. And therefore, our eternal good is wrapped up in the certainty of Christ's exaltation as Lord over all. In other words, here's what we need to see. And what we're going to see today is that God, God does not take chances with the glory of Christ. God does not take risks or calculated you know, chances. He doesn't play games with the glory of Christ. In the divine plan of God, the Lord Jesus Christ shall be exalted through the glorious redemption of a sinful people. And therefore, our salvation is as guaranteed by God's sovereign grace and power as the glory of Christ is. That's what we need to see. God's promise to work all things for the good of those who love Him, to conform them to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ so that He would be glorified and established and, and so that He would be glorified. It is established. It is grounded. It is guaranteed by God's sovereignty in salvation. Okay? God's might, His plan, His action to redeem a chosen people through Christ to the praise of His glory is what is clearly expressed to us in this text that we're looking at this morning. Five links in the golden chain of salvation. Five divine links in the golden chain of redemption. All here in this text. All expressed in terms of what God has done. But beloved, before we look at this text this morning, I want to talk about a couple of things. First of all, I want us to really think about how it is that we should approach what is taught here. Okay? And then second, 
I want us to to take a moment to think about what it is that we must see in this text before we unfold it. For some of us, for some of us in this room, this is brand new. For others of us, this is maybe a little fuzzy. We've heard it before, but it's a little fuzzy for us. And then for others of us, man, this is something that we delight in. We glory in this truth. So how do we approach this text? Because, you know, no matter where we are, we all need to approach it in the same way. So how do we approach it? Beloved, first thing I would say to you is this. We need to approach this text with humility. We need to approach this text with humility, confessing and believing that what Paul tells us here is the absolute truth of God, even if we cannot completely or fully understand it. Okay? This text, beloved, is revealing to us just a small part of the infinite mind of God. And you and I, we are but frail creatures of dust. Right? Right? As Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. We are approaching here the mind, the, 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 the revelation of the, 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 the infinite thinking, the infinite mind of the living God. And we need to do so with humility. Second, we need to approach this text with reverence and awe and with a deep sense of gratitude and amazement that God would even reveal His mind to us in the first place. God has no obligation to reveal anything to us. God has no obligation to reveal to us how He does anything, how He orchestrates anything in this world, that God would give us a glimpse into the way that He orchestrates the salvation of His people is an immense grace gift from the living God, right? And we need to approach this with the reverence and the awe that it deserves. How amazing that we would be given a glimpse into this truth, that God would do so is an act of extraordinary grace and kindness. Third thing is this. We need to approach this text with a worshipful heart. If God had not done, if God had not done, if He did not guarantee every single thing that is described in this text, there is not a one of us in this room that would be saved. Not one of us. No human being would be redeemed. There would be no hope of reconciliation to the holy God. Beloved, we must be filled with praise to God for His wonderful grace to the children of Adam, which He was not obligated to give. Fourth, we need to come to this text. And I want you to hear me when I say this. We need to come to this text understanding that these are not truths which with, with, with which to contend or argue or dispute You know, as if we somehow know better than God how He should do what it is that He does. I'm going to say this to you, I want you to hear me. To do that is to put your soul in grave peril. Now listen to what I mean by that. It's not that, and and it's not that, you know, somebody needs to know all the things that are described in this text in order to be saved. Okay, I'll, I'll get to that, I'll say something more on that in just a second. But to reject these doctrines just out of hand. 
to say, I can't possibly believe that about God. This cannot possibly be the truth of how God saves anyone. To just, to just, to just reject them out of hand is to reject God as He reveals Himself in the Word. Okay? And again, I'll tell you this, you've heard me say this before. People have asked me, how much of God, as He reveals Himself in Scripture, can we struggle with or not believe and still have the same God? I'm not willing to try to find out. That's a foolish gambit. The way God reveals Himself, this truth isn't to be resisted. It's to be embraced as what it is. Not a matter of intellectual or theoretical or philosophical debate. Okay, this is not a football to get kicked around. Understanding the foreknowledge and the predestination of God and how effectual calling works. And that's not something to just bat around with one another. It's just not. These are words of pastoral encouragement from the pen of Paul. These are words of comfort and assurance to the children of God, to believers that are living in a fallen world and everything that comes with that, right? I promise you that when the Roman Christians received these words from Paul, this encouragement that you have been loved by God in eternity past, God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. He has called you unto salvation. He has justified you before His eyes. He will glorify you. I promise you, they didn't sit around arguing, is it fair that God loves some and not others? Is this what has to happen in order for people to... I don't like this. This doesn't, this doesn't give enough glory to man. None of them argued in that way. You know why? They had bigger fish to fry. And you know what that bigger fish was? The persecution and the suffering that they were already undergoing for believing and trusting and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. We have, can I tell you, we have sort of the luxury of being able to sit around and argue about these things and, and you know, distrust the work of God, some of us, not all of us, obviously, most, not most of us. But people have the luxury of doing that because they're not living with their lives at stake. This is not something to argue over. It is, it is, it is a, a statement for endurance and for hope. It's, it's a reminder to, the, to, to these Roman Christians and to us that, listen, man, you are in the loving and the sovereign plan of God. You are in the loving, sovereign plan and purpose of God. And He will not let you down. Last, we've got to approach these words with the understanding that, listen to me, these are not words, these are not truths that you employ in evangelism. Well, hear me with this, okay? Sometimes, us Reformed Christians, we, we get the cart before the horse, Right? And so we'll start talking to somebody who's lost and we want to start talking to them about election and predestination and all that. Listen to me. Listen to me when I say this to you. This is doctrinal truth for the family of God. You hear me? This is doctrinal truth for the family of God. It's doctrinal truth for the children of God. This is not to be employed. These truths are not to be employed primarily for evangelism, but for the edification and the encouragement of the saints. Listen to me, unbelievers, because they are at enmity with God and because their minds are blinded by the God of this world, they despise this truth. They hate it because they hate God. When you speak to an unbeliever, listen, the first order is not to say, do you think you're elect? Think God's predestined you to salvation? That's not where you start. That's not the first order of business with somebody who's not a believer 
is not the foreknowledge of God or predestination or effectual calling. The first order of business with someone who is not a Christian is the fact that God is a holy and a righteous God. And that they have broken His commandments and are sinners under the just wrath of God and they're facing hell and eternal judgment. And that the only way that they can be reconciled to the holy God is to confess their wretched rebellion and receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, right? Paul's already told us, for there's no distinction. All have have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This truth is not primarily, it's, it's fact, it's not at all for the unbeliever. These words are not for the lost. They're for the family of God. That's how we need to approach this text. Okay, then what do we need to see? What must we see? Well, first of all, we've got to see this. I've said it before, I'll say it again. We've got to see in this text that if any sinner is going to be saved, God's the one that has to do it. God must do it. God who alone can save has planned, He's decreed, and He's accomplished the only way in which sinners can be saved. And His plan was established before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Well, it means it was, a, it was established according to His sovereign will and authority. God's plan for saving people and glorifying Christ was not a response or a reaction to human actions. Okay? It wasn't like God came up with this on the fly. This was planned before the foundation of the world. Okay, everything that God has has purposed in and through his son must be accomplished and come to its glorious completion. And none of it is subject to change. And the reason that's true is because this is God's world. Through Isaiah, the prophet, God declared this. He said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. In our text this morning, what we must see is that every step, step in this link, this golden chain of redemption, of salvation, every step is a link in a chain that is fashioned and accomplished by God. Each one leads to the next. It's dependent each one, upon the divine action preceding it. Each link is interrelated so that you can't have one without the others. Let me say that again. You can't have one without the others. In other words, no foreknowledge, no predestination, no predestination, no calling, no calling, no justification, and no justification, no glorification, right? They all go, they all work together, all right? Each step, moreover, is fully complete in the mind of God. How can that be? Because God is outside time. Because God is outside of time. And that's why each link, including glorification, right, is stated in the past tense. Did you notice that? It's stated in the past tense. God's purpose, His decree, so certain that each link, even those that take place in time, can be expressed as fully accomplished, right? Even the future, glorified. One last thing. There is not one link in this golden chain of salvation that is of human forging 
or human design or is dependent upon fallen man and, and his will in order to be accomplished. None of it is. If that were the case, if even one of these links was of our own making, the entire chain would be fragile, it would be compromised, it would be completely unstable, and it would be easily broken. This doesn't rely on us. God doesn't leave His purpose of glorifying His Son as Savior and Lord and firstborn among many brothers. He does not leave our salvation to us or to chance. So I want us to look. We're going to look into this wonderful purpose and divine action of God in our salvation. These five golden links. And I want us to start by seeing that this golden chain of salvation begins in eternity. Look at it. After stating this great promise in verse 28, Paul tells us why this promise is guaranteed. He writes, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here in this verse, Paul introduces us to one of the great attributes of God, His foreknowledge, right? And really, this foreknowledge is the fountainhead of everything that comes after it. So it's important that we understand how Paul is using this word foreknew. Now, some people will say, well, you know, what Paul is saying here is that because God is omniscient, you know, He knows all things that will come to pass. And in this way, they say, God sort of looks down the corridors of, of time. And He sees those down the corridors of time who will, you know, make the choice to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and then based upon their foreseen choice, then, you know, God predestines that person to be conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, God's foreknowledge is entirely dependent upon what human beings do. He just looks down the corridors of time and He sees how you're going to respond and this person's going to respond and that person's going to respond. And then based on what He sees as He looks down the great tunnel of time, He chooses, you know, He, he determines to, to predestine you. In one direction or another. But is that what Paul is saying here? Beloved, the answer to that is a resounding no. For some of you, you may, you may have heard it explained this way your entire life. You've probably heard preachers, some of you, that have stood up and said, what it means when God foresees, and that's all they talk about. They talk about this choice that God foresees. I want to point out a few things here. First of all, I want you to notice that God's foreknowledge is not about choices. It's about people. Right? You see that? This can't, that can't be the way that Paul is using this for at least two reasons. First of all, number one, God is not a passive spectator in what takes place in His universe. He's not. He does indeed know what will take place in time. He absolutely does. But He knows, as we've already seen in the passage from Isaiah, He knows what will take place because God Himself declares the end from the beginning according to His purpose, right? In other words, God is never surprised. God is never like, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. Because God's ordained all things according to His sovereign will. He's the sovereign actor in history. Nothing happens apart from His will. That's what it means to be sovereign. And so for that reason, He does indeed work all things together for the good of His people. Including, you know, our being conformed to the image of Christ. Then second... Let's imagine for just a moment. Let's just imagine for a moment 
that the people that say that God looks down the corridors of time to see what choice men and women will make and then, you know, responds as a result of that human choice and then predestines them, right? Let's say that's right. Let me ask you a question. If God were to look down the corridor of time, what exactly would God see? What exactly would He see? I'll tell you what He'd see. He'd see exactly what Paul had already described in Romans 3. He would see a people who are unrighteous, who have no understanding of God, who do not seek for God, who have made themselves worthless, who do not do good, who are ravaged with sin, who have no fear of the Lord, and who have made themselves fit for destruction. That's what he'd see. Oh, no, no. Because there are people that are going to believe. If you look down the corridors of time, God would see people that believe. Yeah, He would. And you know what? He would see people that believe because it's God who gave them the gift of faith to begin with. God doesn't look down the corridor of time and see people acting in some godly, glorious way apart from His divine intervention. No one believes. If the salvation of God was based upon Him passively looking down the corridors of time and seeing who would choose to believe in Christ and then predestining them to eternal life based on their choice, the sum total of human beings in heaven would be exactly zero. Zero. But praise God, that's not what Paul is saying here. Praise God, that is not what Paul is saying when he writes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That word foreknew has nothing to do with events or choices that God saw in advance. In fact, the reference, as I said before, is not to events at all. It's a reference to certain people, to specific people, isn't it? The identity of those whom God foreknew are those who have been called in these ways in Romans 8. They've been called sons, heirs, saints, those who love God and the called. That's who God foreknew. God foreknew a specific people. And the word foreknew, beloved, it is a personal and it's an intimate word. It's a compound word in the Greek. Progonosko, right? Progonosko. P-R-O-G-I-N-O-S-K-O. Progonosko. It's made up of the word pro, which means before, and the word gnosko, which means to know personally, or intimately, or relationally, and experientially. In fact, in, in the Septuagint, it's the word, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the word that's used for sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means this. It means used of God in this context. It speaks of God's special and choosing love. His distinguishing love, His exclusive love, His sovereign love. It speaks of God fixing His his choosing love, choosing to fix His love upon certain people from eternity before the world ever began. Before anything ever happened. Before God spoke anything into existence. Those whom God foreknew, He foreloved. With, an, with a, an electing, choosing, saving love from before the foundation of the world. That's what Paul is saying here. It's in complete agreement with what John wrote at the beginning of the service, right? Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, in love, 
He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. This foreknowledge, this foreloving, it, 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 it describes Paul's reasoning why the elect in Israel must eventually, finally, and fully be saved. When he says in Romans 11 and verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew, foreloved. Paul describes, or I'm sorry, Peter describes Christians as elect, as chosen to belong to God. Why? He says this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge, the forelove of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Listen, if you are a Christian, here's what Paul is saying to you, beloved. If you're a Christian, your salvation has its source right here. The source of your salvation is right here in the forelove of God, in the choosing, sovereign, saving, distinguishing love of God, whereby He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, not because of any merit in you, not because of any good in you, not because of any potential in you, not because of anything about you at all, but entirely because of His sovereign and electing love. And what that ought to make us say is, why me? Not the way we usually say, why me? Like when something bad happens, like, why is it always me? I mean, but why me? Why me? Why you? Why me and not others? Why me and up until this point, not my brothers? Why? Why me? It's a mystery that's beyond our finding out. The why. Look, we can't know that. There's no way for us to know that. And God hasn't revealed that to us. But we can know the how. According to the purpose of His will and to the praise of His glorious grace, He has set His love upon us and we have been chosen in Christ those of us who are Christians, to be saved. And here's the question. People will go like, well, doesn't that make God unfair? No. You know what it makes Him? God. It makes Him God. It doesn't make God unfair. It makes God gracious. It makes God merciful. It makes God loving and kind. It makes God incredibly merciful to save even one We live in such an entitlement culture, don't we? Everybody deserves the same results. Everybody, right? I mean, we live in the, we live in equity world, right? We live in the land of entitlement. And so for us to actually be brought face to face with the reality, hey, look, you're not entitled to salvation. You're not entitled to God's love, His saving love. You are not entitled to the goodness of God. You're not entitled to any of that. But when we hear that, the, the, the fallen part that still dwells in us, beloved, it does what? Well, it rises up. Who are you to tell me I don't deserve? Right? God has settled His, His love upon His chosen people from all of eternity. From those who He loved for a reason known only to Him. And He's not going to reveal it to us. At least now. And those alone He has from before the foundation of the world predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now I want you to see something. Predestination is not synonymous with foreknowledge. Foreknowledge focuses our attention on the distinguishing love of God, right? 
And then predestination points to God's determined purpose for those whom He foreknew. This word predestined, as it regards, you know, people, it's only used for those whom God foreknew. It's only used for those whom God foreknew. This, this word is only used of Christians. And it speaks of God's gracious and personal involvement to bring us to faith in Christ. It's the Greek word proorizo. P-R-O-O-R-I-Z-O. It means to mark out or to appoint or to determine beforehand the boundaries. In this context, what it means is, it describes God from eternity actively marking out the boundaries of our lives, determining the limits of how far we might go, appointing the experiences and the situations in our lives by which He would move us to hear the Gospel and be brought by the work of the Holy Spirit to salvation in Christ and be adopted into the family of God. God doesn't leave that to chance. For those whom He foreknew, for those whom He foreloved, He predestines, He orders, He He outlines the path of our lives to bring us to salvation in Christ. If He did not predestine conformity okay, to Christ, for those whom He's loved, it would never happen on its own, would it? No, it wouldn't. never happened on its own. Predestination, beloved, is not like determinism. People talk about it like it is, like, like determinism or, or impersonal fate. It's not that. It's the active loving work of God. That's what we're to see. It's the active loving work of God. When I think back on my life, I mean, now on this side of the cross, having been saved, on this side of effectual calling, having been saved, I can think of times, many times in my life, where there are things I desperately wanted to do, things I wanted to engage in, where places I wanted to go, and God providentially hindered every single bit of it. I could never go as far as I wanted to go sometimes. And it was frustrating at the time. But now, I see it as the gracious hand of God. Because that's exactly what it was. It was the gracious hand of God to keep me on the path that he had, he had drawn for my life to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was His sovereign hand on me. Our salvation requires God lovingly and graciously, graciously marking out the boundaries of our lives, right? Appointing the situations and the circumstances of our lives, whether good or bad, to bring us to Himself through the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. God doesn't deal with us all in the same way, does He? For some, He gives more leash, and for others, not as much, right? God doesn't deal with us all in the same way. He wisely, prudently, perfectly marks out the life of every one of those whom He has foreloved in the way that seems best to Him to bring us into conformity to Christ. And His ways are always perfect. Sometimes, we might think, well, you know, if I were God, Man, whenever anybody says that, I, like, I, I just keep waiting for like lightning or something, you know? But sometimes we think to ourselves, you know, if I were God, I, I would have done it some other way. Like I, I would have had a different path for me that would have ended up at the same, you know, destination. Can I tell you that in, a final, in the final analysis, that's an utterly foolish and contemptible thought? It really is. Do you think you know better than God? You don't. 
fact, you ever, somebody ever said to you, like, what's one thing that you would change in your past? If you could change anything, what's the one thing you would change? You know what I always think to myself? Nothing. Because I don't know what one thing might mean that I were not standing right here, right now in Christ. God knows what He's doing. He predestines our lives according to the counsel of His will. And His will is perfect, right? Left to our design, we would never be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. We wouldn't. Left to our own design, we would always end up shipwrecked every single time. God foreknew. He predestined His people to salvation in Christ. Right? Every aspect of our salvation was planned in eternity. It has its origins in eternity, the golden chain does, in foreknowledge, in predestination. And it's revealed to us in time. Look at it. The golden chain of salvation is revealed to us in time. Paul tells us that those whom God foreknew, He predestined. And then he says this, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. Again, I want you to notice with me that all these actions of God regarding the salvation of sinners, they're in the past tense, right? Because from eternal perspective of God, from the omnipotent evaluation of God, all these things are completely accomplished. He sets His love upon His people in eternity. He predestines them to salvation through the atoning work of Christ and to conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. But how then does God bring His eternal purpose to bear in the lives of His chosen ones? Well, He does it by His effectual calling in the life of every one of His people. We, we talked about this last week, but I do want to remind, I want to spend a little time here just again reminding us of, of the effectual, of what the effectual calling of God really is. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, right, through the preaching of the gospel to bring God's chosen to saving faith in Christ. Through the preaching of the Word of God and by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Sinners receive new life and are born from above and they're called out of the darkness and the blindness of their sin. Their blinded eyes are opened up. Their deafened ears are unstopped. They are given the grace to spiritually and savingly understand the truth of the gospel. And the Spirit of God renews wills that were in bondage to sin, changes the desires of those whom God has foreloved and predestined to eternal life, and He makes them willing to come to Christ. And He creates within their hearts the very faith by which they freely and fully lay hold of Christ as Savior and Lord, and thereby change the entire disposition of that person from hatred or apathy toward God to fervent love for his or her Savior, making them a child of God. Effectual calling is the sovereign and the gracious work of God. Now I want you to see something real quick. This is just a side thing, but I want you to understand this. You know, there are some preachers that will say, if you come to faith in Christ, you will be born again. That faith precedes being born again. That's an utter lie. That's not true according to the Word of God. No one by faith is born again. You are regenerated. You are made alive by the Holy Spirit first. And then the only possible result 
for someone who has been born anew or born from above, anothen, by the Holy Spirit, by the work of God in your soul, is to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that is what someone made spiritually alive from spiritual death always does. Are you with me? We would never, ever, never, ever come to Christ on our own. Jesus made this clear. Like, Jesus made it clear. God initiates the salvation of His people. In John chapter 6, verses 37 to 39, Jesus said these words. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Yeah. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Praise God. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Yes. He says in verse 44, No one can come to me, what? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Then verse 65, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Right? Don't get me wrong. We've got to believe, right? Effectual calling means that we must believe, savingly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is undeniably true. That is a fact of Scripture. But even the faith to believe is a gift from God. As Paul describes it in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Well, so if that's the case, right? If, it, if those whom God foreloved and for, and, and predestined, if He calls those to salvation, if He calls those to faith in Christ, if that's the case, how can anyone know that they've been foreloved by God or predestined to eternal life and then called by Him? You know by the way that you respond to the Gospel. You know by the way that you respond to the Gospel. Consider what Paul said to the Thessalonians. After we get through Romans, I think I'm going to preach through First and Second Thessalonians. But maybe not. Who knows? But anyways... Consider what Paul said to the Thessalonians. He said these, these things. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, when the Thessalonians heard the gospel, they weren't just like, oh, that's a nice story. It came to them with the power to transform them. It came to them accompanied by the working of the Holy Spirit. It came to them in full conviction so that they believed. That's how they knew. That's how Paul knew that they had been chosen by God. He says to him later on, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And then the Corinthians, he said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, here's the point. Everyone who is effectually called to eternal life in Christ, they hear the gospel and they hear it as the greatest news they've ever heard. They hear it as the greatest news they've ever heard. The offer of forgiveness of sins. The reconciliation, peace, and acceptance with God through faith 
in the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, you know that you have been graciously called by God, effectually called by God, when you cannot resist His summons to faith in Jesus Christ. You just can't. You, when you, when you, you know, when you can't but see the wretchedness of your sin and your guilt, and, and you put all your hope and all of your trust in Christ to cleanse you of your sins, to bring you to God, and you gladly lay down your life to follow Him as Lord. He becomes your life. He becomes your all. You know that you're loved of God and predestined to eternal life in His Son because you are compelled by the effectual call of God, by the gracious and commanding summons of the sovereign power of God to come to Christ and to believe and to be saved, and you cannot resist. You cannot resist. When the call comes, with that call comes the power to do what the call commands. Think about it, beloved. There's not a greater illustration of it, you know, than, than Christ calling for Lazarus from the dead. You remember the story, right? It had been four days. Lazarus had begun to decay. It was, he had begun to stink. Remember? The sisters, Mary and Martha, were like, uh, by this time, you know, it's gonna smell bad. And yet, when Christ called to Lazarus, in all of his deadness, and in all of his corruption, and in all of his decay, his call came with the power to respond, and Lazarus came to life, stood up, Walked out of the tomb. Why? Because he couldn't do anything else. The effectual calling of God guarantees the response of repentance and faith. It's the divine summons of the King of the universe to those whom He's loved and predestined from eternity to respond to the Gospel, to wake up, to come to life. And we do. We do. Because we can't do anything else. And we come to Christ because we don't want to do anything else more. And if you're sitting there saying, well, that really doesn't describe me, then I'm saying to you, perhaps you have not heard the effectual calling of Christ. You may have acceded in your mind to some facts about the gospel, but you have not heard the effectual calling of Christ. Those whom God foreknew, He predestined. Those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, called to faith in Christ, Paul says, those He justified. He justified them. He did it. You know, we've talked a lot about justification, and, and, and you know, I, I know we have, but we should never grow weary of hearing the wonderful truth of what God has done for us in Christ, right? I mean, it, why, why does Paul describe this over and over again? It's because he wants us to rejoice in justification. I mean, in and of ourselves, by nature, I want you to think about this. Who are we? What are we? Well, we are rebels to God's authority, right? We're breakers of His law. We're workers of iniquity. We're dead in our trespasses. We're darkened in our understanding. We're hard of heart. All of our imaginary righteousness is filthy rags in God's sight, and that might be the hardest thing for us to believe. Oh, but God has made a way. For wretches like us, the only way of justification through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God has made a way to declare sinful men and women reconciled to Him, not based on our merit. We don't have any. But on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us, it involves His incarnation. It involves Jesus Christ, the Word of God, becoming what He never had been from eternity, a man. And coming into this wretched, filthy, wicked, sinful world. 
and doing for us in our place what we would never do. He lived a life of spotless perfection, perfect sinlessness, absolute righteousness. I mean, the more we say that, the more amazing it ought to be. Shouldn't it? Nobody even comes close to that. Nobody else, right? And then, He endured the punishment of our sins, taking the wrath of God upon Himself and our sinfulness imputed to Him on the cross. He bore the full wrath and fury of the holy God that we deserved and rose on the third day so that by faith in Him, by faith in His life and His death, His burial and His resurrection, we might receive the righteousness that we could never earn. God God imputed our sins to Christ on the cross and then He imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ to us. And we're declared not guilty. We're declared fully righteous in the eyes of God in and through His Holy Son being justified by faith, the very gift of God to those whom He foreknew, predestined, and called to eternal life in Christ. There was no hiccup in the plan. Like I laugh, you know, I look at the ridiculous garbage that's going on in our nation counting, you know, our votes for the election. Now you've got to be kidding me. It's an absolute joke that we live in a nation that knows perfect inventory at lows and cannot count legitimate ballots in one night. It's ridiculous. There are no hiccups in God's plan. There are no, like, ballot drops later on that nobody's sure where they came from to determine whether or not you are in His plan. There's no shenanigans. There are no hiccups in God's plan. He accomplishes everything perfectly, including our glorification, because the golden chain of salvation reaches back to eternity. Look at it. Listen to what Paul says again. Just read the whole thing, verses 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified... He also glorified. Paul speaks of our glorification as if it's already been accomplished because from God's perspective it has. And not a single link of this golden chain forged by God is ever going to be broken. The final work of God in our salvation is to glorify us. To glorify us with Christ. Those whom He's foreknown, predestined, called, justified will be made completely sinless. Will be purified completely. I can't even imagine what that's going to be like. We'll be, we'll receive a glorified body like that of the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be ushered into an eternal state of unending joy and perfect blessedness in the presence of God. We'll be completely conformed to the image of Christ, free from all sin, positively like Christ in all of His holy character. What does that mean? Listen to me. It doesn't mean that we're going to become little gods. Okay? There's a lot of preachers out there, heretics, they're not preachers, they're heretics, that talk about mankind becoming little gods. You hear a guy talking about that? Run. Run. Well, he's got some other good stuff. Run. We're not going to become little gods, as heretics teach. But our character as the sons of God will be as much like Christ as any creature could possibly be. 
It will mark the completion of God's plan of redemption. The full realization of Christ's work of salvation to bring us to God and enjoy the fullness of communion and the unfolding of a new and a wonderful sphere of eternal life. Namely, the glory of free and unhindered fellowship with the Father and with the Son, the likes of which we can only begin to conceive. But God doesn't want us to be ignorant of what that fellowship is going to be like. We have a foretaste of that glory now in the fellowship of the true church, don't we? Though it's imperfect, we have a certain foretaste of the glory of heaven as we worship God in the preaching of the Word of God, in the fellowship of the saints, right? As we, as we hold the truth together with the same mind and the same heart, as we sing praise and exaltation to our saving God, as we pray with one another, as we serve one another, as we bear with one another and confess our hope and stir one another up to love and to good works, truly it is a foretaste of the glory that is yet to come. In all straightforwardness, I'm going to say this. In all straightforwardness, wherever I find someone who does not delight in the assembly of the saints, in the presence of the Lord, who does not delight in the Word of God preached in the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, someone who treats the assembly of the saints with apathy or indifference or disinterest, if one doesn't value worship and communion with God and with His people, Straightforwardly, I cannot even begin to imagine why they would believe that they would be fit for heaven. That sounds so mean. That's not mean. That's just a, that's a sanctified deduction. If you don't delight in the fellowship, in the fellowship of the saints, in fellowshipping with God, in fellowshipping with Him in worship, and hearing His word proclaimed, and magnifying and glorifying Him, and exalting Him, if that does not thrill your soul, if that, if you don't long to be with the people of God, what do you think heaven's gonna be? What do you think? It's gonna be heaven. It's gonna be the perfected church and perfected worship and perfected life as the family of God and perfected communion with the triune God. This is just a foretaste of what's yet to come. And we ought to love it. And that's a good sign as to whether or not you're on the path to glorification right there. Whether you've been called and you've been justified and you're on the way, man. is What is your response to the corporate worship and the fellowship of the saints? It's imperfect. Yes. But there's nothing like it on the, in the earth. Nothing like it in the world. When it comes to churches that faithfully proclaim the Word of God and fa- look, you know what? You'll never find me being a, a church basher of churches that faithfully preach the Word of God. You just won't. Will I call out false teachers? Oh, oh yeah. False gospels? Yep. Fake worship, hypocritical worship? Yeah. But in the true church, in the faithful church, where the Word of God, the gospel is faithfully preached, it's a little taste of heaven corrupted as it is by still yet imperfect people. But it's a great gift from God. The golden chain of salvation, beloved. It can't be broken. Every single link of it is forged by the omnipotent God and nothing of our salvation will be left undone. He's accomplished it all. 
He gets all the glory because it's all of Him. Charles Spurgeon spoke of this saying. He wrote, he said, You know, well can I remember the manner in which I learned the doctrines of grace in a single instant. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when first I received those truths in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron, and I can recollect how I felt that I had grown on a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge. Though having found once for all the clue to the truth of God, one weeknight, while I was sitting in the house of God, the thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord, said I. But how did you come to seek the Lord? Oh, the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought Him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek Him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. How came I then to read the Scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. And that He was the author of my fate. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Amen. That was Spurgeon's response. What's ours today? How do we respond? First, let me say this. I said this at the outset. This doctrine is not for unbelievers. Okay, it's not. It's not for unbelievers until you're saved. And then you're going to love it. But it's not for unbelievers. If you're here this morning and you're either unsure that you're a Christian or you know that you're not, the question for you is not to determine whether or not you are foreknown by God or predestined of God or elect of God. You can't know that. That's... The first, that is not the first and most pressing question for you. The most pressing issue for you this morning is, again, to deal with the fact that God is a holy and a righteous judge and God. And you have broken His commandments and you are guilty before Him. You are a sinner under the just wrath of God facing hell and facing eternal judgment and you did not get there by accident. You're there because of you, your own sin. The only way that you can be reconciled to holy God is to own and confess and repent of your sin and lay hold of Jesus Christ so that you might receive the righteousness of God through faith in Him for all who believe. He alone has lived the life that you couldn't live and He has died the death suffering the wrath of hell to which you are heading unless you repent. He's the one alone who can save sinners because He is the only one put forth by God as the wrath bearer for our sins. I'm calling you to faith in Christ today. And I pray that God is drawing you through my call to you with an effectual calling whereby you can't resist. But for those of us that are in Christ, these words ought to be 
a never-ending source of comfort and assurance. Shouldn't they? Like, our salvation reaches back into eternity to the forelove of God, to God choosing us to set His, to choosing to set His special and saving love upon us before time began, Him predestining our lives. He's effectually called us in time, created within us the faith by which we lay hold of the saving work of His Son. He's justified us in Christ, and He's gonna glorify us for all of eternity. Our salvation is entirely the work of God. We can't mess it up. Praise God. We can't mess it up. He's done it all. And so He receives all of the glory. And we're assured that salvation in its fullness will be ours because it's the work of God from beginning to end. You know, we we just have five links here in this golden chain of salvation. And you know this. A chain is only as strong as what? Its weakest link. And every link of this chain is fashioned and forged by the omnipotent power of God. Not one of these works is the work of man. Not one of these works is dependent upon our strength to hold together. Not one of these links is anything that we have done or could do. In fact, if, if any of these links were the work of man, it would inevitably break. Our name's not tied to these works. God's name is. And God has exalted His Word and His name above all things. God predestined, He called, He justified, He glorified. He does it all for you, yes, but ultimately for the glory of His beloved Son. Some people say, well, you know, if, if this is all the truth, if salvation, Christian salvation is completely secure because of the work of God and, and we don't have anything to do. I didn't say we don't have anything. We're not, any, none of these links are ours. We do have to believe. We will believe because of the power of the effectual calling. We must believe. However, if this is all dependent upon God and our salvation is, then won't that lead to loose and careless living? Paul's already dealt with this once before, hasn't he? Like he has to deal with this every now and then. Whenever he talks about grace, inevitably he's got to deal with the idea of, you know, loose and careless living. You know the answer to that, beloved. Paul tells us right here the answer to such an objection. He doesn't raise it, but he tells us the answer. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is conforming you to the image of his son. And conforming you to the image of his son does not include loose and careless living. Does it? Does it? The very power and plan of God precludes a true Christian from living in a loose and a careless manner, at least without conviction and discipline. The work of the Holy Spirit precludes such a case. Instead, this glorious truth, rightly understood and embraced by an authentic Christian, actually spurs that person to humbly seek to worship and honor and obey and serve the God that has shown such kindness to sinners, right? Such kindness to you before the foundation of the world. Salvation leads to a grateful people, doesn't it? Is it true of you? It's awfully silent. Is it true of you? Should be. This golden chain, moreover, ought to spur us on to pray for the salvation of the lost, to be agents of the general call of the gospel unto salvation, knowing that God is supremely committed to those whom He's loved before the foundation of the world to save them. It should spur us on to pray and to evangelize. How can I say that? I mean, if if this is all true, if it's all the work of God, then why pray or why evangelize? God will have His people, right? Well, here's the answer to that. Number one, we're commanded to pray and to evangelize. That's number one. We are commanded to do so. There doesn't need to be another reason. Does there? No. When I gave a command to my children when they were younger and living at home and under my authority, when I gave a command to my children, I didn't give them the command and then they say, well, why? Sometimes they said that. Once. 
it's John John many times because John John was a glutton for punishment. But and Cammy because she thought she'd get away with it. But anyways, God commands it. That's number one. But second, because these things, prayer for the lost and evangelism of the lost, are the very means that God has appointed through which he brings his eternal salvation to bear in the lives of his elect, right? And we should pray and proclaim the gospel out of confidence that such praying and evangelism will be effective because God will have the people whom he has foreloved and predestined from every tribe and nation and tongue, right? Well, you might say, well, well the, the whole prayer and evangelism thing in, in, in alignment with the golden links of God's, you know, redemptive plan and everything, that just seems like such a mystery. It is. It is. But it's the testimony of the Word of God, right? And who are we to answer back to Him? And then last, listen, this golden chain of salvation, this golden chain of redemption, this glimpse into the mind and the heart of God, Beloved, it ought to be for us an anchor of certain hope in the midst of an uncertain world. That's what it's meant to be. That's why Paul gave this. Our circumstances are like shifting sand, aren't they? Aren't they? I mean, they are. Our circumstances are like shifting sand. God is faithful. His sovereign grace is unchanging and it's undefeated. And the promise of this golden chain, beloved, it lifts our eyes from what's around us that so often consumes us. It lifts our eyes and makes us remember that we are pilgrims and strangers in this earth, living in a land that's not our home. And praise God, the best is yet to come. We know that God has loved us from eternity. We know He has predestined us, predestined our lives by His perfect wisdom. We know He's called us to salvation in Christ. We know He's justified us. And we know He will bring us to everlasting glory because His Word and His purpose cannot fail. Our salvation is wrapped up in the glory of Christ. And God is going to exalt His Son above all others. He's going to do it. He will give Him the name that is above every other name. He's going to do it. The Lord has spoken. And it will be done. Just as He said. Let's pray together. Father, these words, how remarkable. Like every time, Lord, we're in Your Word together. I know this to be true, but it's confirmed over and over again that these are not the product. These words are not the product of men. These are not the words of men. Lord God, these are the words of the living God given to us entrusted to us through men chosen and carried along by the Holy Spirit to write such things. Father, there's no man, no woman that would write these words. There's no one that could, could, could you know, have such wisdom and such understanding. And so they just, it doesn't exist. There's nobody exists. This is the work of your hands. It's the truth that you want us to know, that we must believe and stake our lives upon. And God, what a great comfort it is when you speak to us, when you speak to your children, and you let us know, Lord God, that 
your love for us. Father, we can't search out the beginning or the end of that. That you have loved us before the foundation of the world. That you have chosen us out of your distinguishing love in Christ to be saved. And Father, that, that you ordain our entire lives. That you have marked out the boundaries of our lives in the exact way that it's necessary in order for us who have been chosen to be saved. And Lord, you called us at the time that was right in your plan, in your eternal determination. You called us by an effectual, powerful, faith-creating, life-giving calling. You brought us to life in Christ. You've justified us through the work of Christ, who is the Lamb, you know, who is foreknown before the foundation of the world and made manifest in this time for our sake. Lord, you have glorified us. You will glorify us. That even now, Lord, we can be confident that eternal glory is our possession because you have said it so. I pray, Lord God, that these words this morning would have the work in each of our souls, those that are in Christ, that Paul intended when he penned them for the Roman church. God, I pray that it would be encouragement to us. I pray that it would be, you know, edification to us. I pray, Father God, that it would be comfort and assurance to us. I pray, Lord God, it would be a source of worship for us. I pray, Lord God, that we would just be really amazed and astonished and in awe. And God, I pray too. Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that do not know Christ. That have not surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. That, Father, may have, you know, a manner of knowledge about Jesus. They might understand the particulars of the Gospel even. But, Father, have never come to the place of confessing their sin and their wickedness of turning away from that sin and of trusting in the perfect life and the perfect death of Jesus Christ for salvation. They've never come to the place, Lord God, of of surrender and laying down their lives and losing their lives for Christ's sake that they might be saved. God, I'm praying that You would draw those people to You today. I pray that You would meet with them and I pray that You would call out faith in them and I pray, Father God, that that You would make them to see that they have belonged to You from before creation. Lord, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your kindness to us. Thank You that we get to hear Your Word. And I pray, Lord God, You would bring forth in us the fruit that this truth deserves. Lord, I know that, uh, Lord, I just pray that the weakness of the preacher would not weaken the force of the words. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.